HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. My name is Joe Campanelli. I'm the host of the show, and today I'm here with Alice Firing, and we are going to talk about Gallo's new multi-regional <laughs> project of uh, Chilean Malbec, 7 million cases a year of each of these. No, 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 not at all. Alice is a big uh, proponent of natural wines. Um, she's written several books including How I Saved the World from Parkerization. The Battle for Wine and Love goes first. And then... The Battle for Wine and Love. But the subtitle <laughs> is the one everybody kind of remembers. <laughs> it is a very memorable subtitle. Um, and it is a book that I have actually read. Since we opened up I have, I have, uh, our first restaurant, my, my book reading has uh, decreased significantly. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the ones that that I wanted to read, mostly because I've known you for several years now, and uh, I think that you are one of the most exciting and interesting people in, in the industry, oh, sweet. and uh, I really like hanging out with you, so <laughs> I wanted to, uh, I definitely wanted to read your book, um, but Alice, thank you so much for being on the show, it's great to have you. It's so fun to be here, and it hasn't even started, but I have a feeling I'm just going to giggle our way through. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a blast. Well, okay, so tell, what is, how do, how do you define parkerization? What, mm. is, what is your definition of this? It feels like parkerization is so yesterday at this point, but um, parkerization, I used it not to really invoke the name of Robert M. Parker Jr., but it is a a sameness. Um, Basically, the way winemakers try to change their wine to suit his preference, that would be the end result is parkerization. Yeah. And these winemakers would assume that either they would get a, a higher rating or that maybe they'd have more universal approachableness and acceptance higher for their rating. wines. The higher the higher sales. Rating. Sell yeah. their wine out. Ninety five points. Done. Go to the bank. Done. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why there were so many winemakers during the dark years that would always say, Well, I don't drink my own wines. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not the wines that they drink. Now more and more winemakers are having the courage to make their own wines. Is the world saved? Is it, is it over? I saved it. No, um, it is not over. It still exists. But I think that there is way more diversity than there was back in the early part of this century. Around 2000, 2010, there's way more diversity. Actually, let's say between 1994 and 2004, it was really the dark ages. And then it's like, wow, it's back. So, no, it's great. There could be Parkerized wines. I don't care. There could be big, oaky, you know, fruit bombs, jammy. But there's this whole diversity of wines. It is safe to go out and drink in New York City now. It was not safe for a long time. What do you think were the factors that contributed to this this new safeness, this new uh, diversity the kind of wines that you and I like to drink that mm. that are that are prevalent mm. around around town. Why, how did that happen? Well, try how to figure a way to just, just condense it all. I think actually the internet and the um, pl- proliferation of blogging helped a great deal to spread the word. I think um, it um, because the natural wine movement was strong in France since well, let's say 1980, and. But the wines weren't all that available in the United States. Certainly, Joe Dresner brought them, then Jenny and Francois brought them, Kermit brought them, but um, Neil Rosenthal. I think the awareness... Also, you know, it's kind of funny. um, You know, in the wine world, we know what we want, we know how to get it. But I often forget that there's a whole lot of people in this country, a whole lot of people who don't have access. And I've met after... The Battle for Wine and Love came out. I got so much mail with this message. I had no idea there was an alternative. I thought I was supposed to like those wines. And then they went to seek out the wines that I've talked Mm -hmm. about in the book. And lives changed. Um, And I wasn't the only one doing that. But that feedback that I thought I was supposed to like those wines. And I know today some people have that with natural wine. I'm supposed to like this shit. Um, I said, no, do you like it or not? But at least... They're just more available. There are more people. And actually, funny. I thought that in my my own drinking history with with beer, when yeah. the first beers that you, you drink are are terrible beers, and I never liked them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, maybe I just don't like beer. What's mm-hmm. the deal with this? But then when I tried the first my first good beers, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's what beer. Right. That's what it's supposed to taste like. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And it's funny. I never heard that feedback really? with with wine, and so that's that's a really interesting. Yeah. I can show kind you of scores nugget. of emails. Scores. And um, one of my favorite stories, God, Bob, you listening? Hope not. Um, I got an email from somebody about two years ago in August. He picked up the Battle of One Love in a used bookstore, which did not make me happy. (laughs) (laughs) So go out and buy naked wine, you know, pay full price. Uh, And he said, I'm curious to taste these wines, but um, I'm sure it's not going to take me out of my favorite J. Lore Cabernet. Well, Fast forward, the guy never had a passport. He got his passport. He's working in wine shops. He's crazy. For, he doesn't really drink that other stuff. He's, he just buys all this crazy wine. He just fell madly in love with this other side. I mean, that happens a lot. It's exciting. But anyway, so there's more diversity. When you go over to France um, to the tastings, the natural wine tastings, or just the big tastings, people are hunting. All these mm-hmm. small wine importers are in the game now looking for interesting wines. And do you think uh, that these wines have always existed, 
but that now they're more readily available. People are bringing them in. They're importing. Or has there also been on the on the the production side, which I know you go to France yeah. several times a year, yeah. and you're you're very very in touch with the production side. Mm-hmm. Have those wines have those wines uh, been more abundant? Are more people making more interesting wines? Well, the growth in France is certainly exponential, but I think the best example, the best way to answer that question is one reason that I wrote The Battle for Wine and Love is that whole chunks of the wine universe were being eradicated for me. I used to love wines from Italy, from Spain, and for example, and there was hardly anything I could drink from those countries anymore because they had gone so over to the other side. Now they're back big time. Since 2006, Italy is back. Spain, thanks to Jose Pastor, is finding these people. Uh, there's all sorts of life back. And let's take the United States, for instance. I don't think I could have said back in 2008, in fact, I know I couldn't have said it, that I could spend the whole night drinking California wine. I now can do that. There's people in California. I never thought that we'd have a California Chardonnay by the glass, much less by the bottle at any of our restaurants. It didn't exist. And we have a bunch of them at La Picha. We have one by the glass and it's really exciting. It is. It's totally exciting. It's, um, California was probably the main example where people would say, well, you know, I don't really drink my own wine and, or they don't have to say it. You just go into their house and you see that they don't have any of their own wine. They have all this other crazy stuff. And now, People are saying, well, you know what? If I'm making wine for myself, I'm only making maybe two to 3,000 bottles, maybe 4,000 bottles. I can make the wine that I'm passionate about, which means with fewer additives and way more exp- expressive of the place. So let's define these, these wines, if, if that is possible sure. at all. The wines that, 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 that you really like. Um, this term, maybe this term natural wine. Mm. I don't know how you feel about. I don't care. You don't care about it. What's real wine? What What is the wine that you like? And then are there any distinct boundaries where you're like, if they do this, I, I am writing that wine off. That is no, that no longer qualifies as something that I am interested in anymore. Well, that's why blind tasting is so great. And I try not to judge a wine before based on what it's, but by the text sheet before I taste it. It's always keeps you honest. Uh, but, you know, it's like, theoretically speaking, if a wine is, you know, I put my nose in it and I smell aromatic yeast, I'm like, I don't even want to put it in my mouth. It's like, I got one liver. I don't want to mess around with it. Um, it only needs good stuff. Um, reverse osmosis is a technique I don't like. Thermovinification is a technique that I don't like. Basically, we'll avoid those wines. Thermovinification. Yeah, it basically speeds up the. Um, you'll Dubuff uses it, and it's it's actually a technique that's used all over southern France for the more commercial wines, mm-hmm. and it speeds up. Uh, it speeds up vinification to like like a matter of days as opposed to weeks, months. So it's um, it strips a, it strips a wine dry, and then you have to add all this other stuff in. Mm-hmm. And their and their point for doing that would be that the more you can control it, the more you can make something that exactly. that's crafted in your right. in your vision. It's playing God with wine. Yeah, playing God with wine. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I've created this wine in my vision. Right. In my character. Yeah. Uh, also, if I see somebody's, there's. <laughs> I remember, um, well, one probably the first time that I went to Champagne, and uh, or the time that I went to visit uh, Pierre Lamondier and I was sitting 
standing in his vineyard in Vertus and right next to Clicos. And then you see biodynamic um, viticulture right next to scorched earth. I mean, after that, there's just no way you want to drink that other stuff when you see where it comes from. Yeah, and champagne is one of the the worst when it comes to... Still. Still that bad, huh? It's really bad. You have a, a small handful of producers who are who are farmers who are growing grapes who are really doing good stuff, caring about their land and doing good stuff. And then you have these larger producers who are, I mean, there are stories and, and you, you've seen it firsthand, but of of there being the the trash of Paris. Yep. Have you seen batteries in French vineyards? Sure in have. Champagne in Krug, vineyards? as a matter of fact, in Krug, uh, Claude, de, Claude de Menil. I have batteries, that blue stuff. It's like, you're crazy. This is supposed to be ground crew and you treat it like crap. Like, excuse me? Yeah. It, 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 it absolutely blows my mind that, that, they, that they treat it like that, that they charge that kind of money for maybe it. Maybe they think the batteries add to the electric acidity. <laughs> Who are your, some of your favorite champagne producers? Mm, oh God, there's so many these days. Um, well, I... Do love Pierre Lomondier. That's like kind of his old guard at this point. Um, Cedric Bouchard wines are fantastic. Um, Francis Boulard, um, Marie Noel de Drew. I had a new one that um, Paul Wasserman, Becky Sun is going to be bringing in. They'll be available. Um, I think the name is Pierre Gerbet, which is the same. He's also from the south, the same village as Cedric Bouchard. God, those wines. I went to visit him this you winter. With, wow. It was fantastic. I was fucking freezing. So cold, but it was so good. I went to Rousset as well, and oh, who's um, Olivia Oyo is doing beautiful work mm-hmm. down there in that gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous village. He's the only organic producer. Hopefully that'll come back. Um, so there's lots of exciting things going on in oh Champagne. Yeah, totally. Right? We have those Cedric Bouchard wines at every one of our restaurants, even Delanimo, oh. which is... In all Italian wine, <laughs> like, <laughs> I can, okay. we can squeeze in some Bouchard yeah, champagne. Can. It's yeah. freaking amazing, yeah. amazingly delicious stuff. Yeah, Beresh, I love. I mean, there's just it's um, it's very exciting. What's happening in Champagne is really exciting yeah. now, and it's there are those. It's changed. Generally. I have to also give you some credit for um, at Anfora. Uh, I'll, I'll often when we bring on a new wine, I'll do I'll do some research and train the staff on on the new mm-hmm. wine. And I find that at, at at Amphora specifically, when I'm bringing on a new wine, and I will Google that wine and try to find out as much information as possible. A lot of times, it takes me to the firing line, hmm. and yes. it takes me to your website and <laughs> great pictures and great stories. And they're very like I, I, I like it because they're they're uh, personal stories about about and you, their character and and you, you mm-hmm. kind of get a good idea of the personality mm-hmm. of the of the producer. Um, so thank you for that for oh. for helping with the uh, the research and training phase <laughs> at, at Amphora very much. Thanks for reading. Absolutely. The firing. So what do you what do you have going on? What are you uh, covering on the firing line these days? Well. About last October, I launched the paid section for the firing line. Mm. So that is a downloadable PDF that is 65 bucks for 10 issues a year. And it was, I just, um, I had to do it. I just had to do it. I had to give myself a job. And I'm putting most of my effort into those stories. So there's always like a tech piece. There's always an in-depth vineyard profile there are 20 wine recommendations. I don't know. It's it's hard to keep it to the eight pages I'm trying to keep it to, short and sweet. Uh, 
the wines instead of numbers or anything like that have icons like Van de Soif, Lay It Down, Classic, Geek, uh, Hardcore. And I think it's the only thing that... What qualifies as a hardcore wine? A h- hardcore would be... Uh, maybe this wine is it's a no-sulfur wine and maybe it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like the adventurous. For the adventurous. For the adventurous. Like maybe if you're going from 95 points to another kind of wine, like, you know, it could be a little bit like a wild card. That would be hardcore. But somebody who's willing to go, like I just, what would co- what um, qualifies that, that will be in the next newsletter is, um, do you know, um, God, what's Deidre's last name? Hello, Deidre. From Vermont. Deidre from Vermont. From Pane Salute. Oh, I don't know her last name. Okay. She wrote the book. Yes. And so La Garagiste. um, And I'm just having, Deidre, if you're listening, I'm terribly sorry because I love you and I love you once. Um, And I just had this sparkling wine that she made from wines grown in Vermont. And it is a skin contact made in Method Champenoise that is stunningly, shockingly beautiful. That would come. No sulfur. Yeah. Qualifies. Do you ever come across someone who... Deidre Heakin. Deidre Heakin. Got it. Yeah. Deidre Heakin. Up in Woodstock. Hope you're listening. Uh, uh, do you ever come across a, a situation where you meet a winemaker who is a fantastic person, you see <laughs> their viticulture, and it's like, yes, you, this is, you are clearly caring very much for your, for your land, and this is a, a kind of ideal situation, and then they just muck it up in the winery. Yeah. We won't name names, okay. but it, it happens, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, the same way it's heartbreaking when you meet kind of a bastard, but you love his wines. But, um, you know, that's heartbreaking, too. Is that the same, that the same what heartbreak? What are you going to do? I, I find I it, for me, I don't know. Which no, is it's not the same heartbreak, but it is kind of that, huh, you know, it shouldn't work that way. But um, I often find myself quoting Becky, but there was one time, Becky Wasserman, and one time I was staying with her in Burgundy, and I came back from visiting somebody in Jervis Chambertin and says, you know, he's doing all the right things and he works so well and he's so passionate. And she looks at me and she says, you know, some people just aren't talented. <laughs> they just don't. And it was like, what can you do? It's really sad. Yeah, it, it is sad. Mm-hmm. Well, we're here to celebrate the talents. I'm going to ask you when we get back about some of your favorite talents from around the world and a little bit about uh, Georgia Okay. The country. The country. Which we've both been to <laughs> you a few more times than I have, but it's a place that I am uh, very excited about, very passionate about, and I want to hear your takes on it as well. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. We're back on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm here with Alice Firing. Uh, Before we get started, I want to invite all of you to 
And Fora, on August 13th, we're going to be doing a, the second one of our classes over at Anfora. This one is going to be on Muscaday. Um, it's something that Alice and I both share a love for. It's called Marvelous Muscaday. August 13th, go to uh, MarvelousMuscaday at Eventbrite.com. Yes, I nailed it. No, I didn't <laughs> nail it. Uh, go to Anfora and click on the <laughs> Muscaday button uh, link on, on the Anfora website. Uh, and we hope to see you there. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, middle of middle of August, I feel like, is an ideal time to be drinking some fresh Muscadet. Alice, you're a big fan of Muscadet as well? Yes, it's the Desert Island one. It's the Desert Island. Yeah. See, I, I agree. When people ask about these Desert Island wines and someone says a really old bottle of Burgundy or, or whatever, I always feel like if you're on a Desert Island, I want something that's refreshing. Yeah, no, actually, it's. I often say, like, Muscadet and and Gamay because they're both wines that are really inexpensive. You could buy a lot of them and they age up beautifully. So you always have a different thing to go to. I couldn't live on Old Burgundy all the time. No, it's a very, for me, it's a very contemplative. Yeah, I just want to knock it back. You're in the desert. It's hot. It's hot. (laughs) Throw a couple in the the water to cool them down and then. Muscadet ages so beautifully, so like, why not? How did you fall in love with, with Muscadet? What were your first experiences with it? Oh, wow. You know, I can't remember my very first experience with it. Probably Price. Probably, probably Price. Um, maybe in back in the ancient days when I was selling wine for Victor Schwartz and realized that he had a tremendous bargain in Muscadet and it was like, I love the neutrality of it. I love that nothing gets in the way. I and mean, if it's farmed well... Because, like Champagne, there's a lot of bad agriculture out in the Nantes area. But it's just refreshing, and it's salty, and it's Atlantic. Yes. And I agree with you also with, with uh, Gamay. Which, where else can you find two wines in the world where for $20 a right. bottle, that's the top end. That's top end. You know, that is... That is well, certainly going. for Miscadet. You know, like Beaujolais has gotten. Beaujolais has gotten. But yeah, you, you can still get Loire Valley Gamay at a really good price. You can get something that is, that is truly distinctive truly delicious mm-hmm. and that is also uh age worthy yeah there's nowhere else i think there's no. nowhere else in the world no that that. i just want to drink it chucho gamay like all the time and they're joyful wines there's something just so happy and joyful about about those two wines yes so agree. i'm glad that, that you love it you know i i do want to ask you a little bit about uh we haven't had too many journalists on this uh on this show uh-huh. so what is the life of a journalist in New York City who is writing about wine, hmm. who is not writing for like a major publication, but kind of doing yes. your doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. What's that like? I know my my girlfriend is a, a freelancer in, yeah. the, in the fashion industry, and it, for her, it's very challenging to sometimes put. Uh, you know, either you have a ton of work one week, you have nothing the next week, you have to turn down a job you really want because you've already pre-committed. There are all these different things about, it, but how does how does it work with with a writer? What it, what is your life like? Well, now that I have the newsletter, really, it really is. I did give myself a job, and I'm very happy to take myself out of, as a friend of mine would call it, the pitch and grovel. You know, it's like I'm. It's you always have to be asking for work, and it's a terrible position to be in. And except for the times that assignments come in, and it is very feast or famine. And uh, some people would say that um, being a Uranian kind of girl, I'm kind of used to the ups and downs. <laughs> but it's tough. It's tough. So it kind of wore me out after doing it for 20 years. 
It is, um, there are a few people like Eric, like John Vinay, very few people who are really blessed with a real job, um, like Letty Teague. So it's, it's tough, but on the other hand, it is extremely exciting. So you really have both because you're not in a day job, you're not going into an office, you really see the news quicker because you're out looking for it. And you have more freedom to experience. So it's not just what comes across your desk. So it's, you know, I have less stability, but I've got more excitement. Mm-hmm. What, what advice would you give someone who wants to be a wine journalist? Oh, do something else. <laughs> um, a wine journalist. We say I never wanted to be a wine journalist. It was never anything that I set out to be. So I don't quite understand this new idea of becoming a wine journalist. But... I would say like any writer, um, especially, well, certainly do not specialize totally in wine because we're in a country still that really only wants to know what to drink. We're not reading as much as we used to. Magazines and newspapers are not paying as much as they used to. And everybody wants you to write for free. So it is a very difficult time. That said, have an opinion. Everybody, I mean, have an opinion. Have a voice. Be a strong writer first, and then go into one. Travel as much as possible. Uh, go to vineyards. Meet people. Mm-hmm. Have an idea. Are there all sorts of, I, I imagine that there are all sorts of these great fringe benefits where you're getting sent samples all the time. and going Not on such great a fringe bef- benefit. No, you know what? I actually wrote for a short amount of time, and I remember the samples Drek. that they sent. It was just, yeah. Right? The wines that we like to drink... Marcel Lapierre is not sending us not any coming. samples. <laughs> Every once in a while, actually, if um, if uh, Sopexy does a uh, Beaujolais kind of whatever, it, it's rare. But those aren't really, uh, yeah, those are not the perks. I mean, that's the stuff that I, you know, I think we all give away to our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And especially I'm on a five-floor walk-up. I see a case of samples like, who sent this to me and why? Like, no, check it at the door. I don't take unsolicited samples. Yeah. And I try, now that I have my newsletter, I try not to solicit. Um, I, fi- I will, unless it's really essential. And can you, can you judge a wine at like uh, an industry tasting sort of scenario, or is that for a different purpose? Usually, mostly, I go to industry tastings, and I flag to taste again. Mm-hmm. So investigate. Every once in a while, if it's one that I'm familiar with or shocking, just shockingly stellar, then I can I can write a note on that. But it really is okay. I gotta go. I taste a wine that I like. I have to go and visit that person within reason. Yeah. And so, what's what do you see as the future of of wine writing? It seems that mm-hmm. it's moving towards and more of an online. I don't know what the, what it is. Well. One thing that's changing is the the level of wine geekdom out there is shifting away from the points to a more curious drinker. And that more curious drinker probably is making more time for writing and reading. So I have a feeling that we're in transition. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Um, I know that wine books don't sell. It's a rare wine book that sells. Well, uh, so what are we going to be doing about, um, I can't answer that. Mm -hmm. I can't answer that, but there will be some more online things. People will probably be following 
my example, and or like Antonio Galloni, how many paid subscriptions are we going to be able to support? I don't know. But uh, it may go more into that realm. I know um, the wine doctor has owned his paid subscription too. So more people are going into that. That's have you read more. any um, any good wine books recently that you wish, like, oh, more people should read that. That should sell more. Gosh, that's one question I wasn't prepared for. I'm reading <laughs> wine books all the time. And um, I just read one that I won't say that I didn't like very much, and I was extremely critical of it, and I'm not going to mention that name. That took up some time. I'm in the middle of um, Lawrence Osborne's The Wit, and the dry right now, and that is cocktail drinking in um, Muslim countries. Um, that's different. Cocktail drinking in Muslim countries. Yeah. Yeah, it's a collection of essays that Very I know he didn't want to write, but it's getting phenomenal reviews. So, so much for not wanting to write. It's Right now, I think we're going to be seeing a proliferation in wine books of very specialized areas. Mm-hmm. And... But I think what we all want, though, is like a good read, whether it's a wine book or any book. So I think we need to get back to real wine literature where you're taking somebody on an adventure. Yes, like Kermit Lynch's. Yeah, which is still, I mean, why is that a classic? Because it's still a wonderful read. Still Still is. I love that book. I I should go. That's one of the books I've been meaning to go back to and read again. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Yeah. So I do want to talk to you about, I guess we're running low on time. We oh are, no. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about uh, the country of Georgia. I took a trip there uh, two years ago. You sure it did. Was, yes, we took a trip we there took together. Trip there. In fact, we had such a great time. We was, And that was your first time as well. And you've that was been my back first time. Yeah. Several times. Uh, we had such a great time. We spent the day in Munich. We had a great time. <laughs> And then, boy, what a what a! I almost a killed trip. you for being late to the airport. You almost didn't make it to Munich. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> Alex, who's the executive producer, is like Joe is almost late to something. No, not the Joe that I know. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Uh, yeah, it was a great trip. I still have not, have never missed a flight due to my own tardiness. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, that still has not happened. Anyway, so we 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 made it, yes. um, and we made it to. <laughs> we flew into Munich for the day in Munich, and then then took another flight and arrived in Tbilisi at some god awful like three thirty in the morning, three thirty in the morning Boy. hour, um, and it really felt like wow. This felt like an, a covert operation when we sure got did. there. <laughs> I know, sort of like get enter secretly into the country and then all of a sudden all reality is spun on its head <laughs> yeah absolutely and the george w bush highway do you remember that, was, that? yes it's that, still there that was like really a wacky shock. a shocking thing shocking. for me to see um and so we got to we got to georgia we had a chance to to visit uh several wineries to visit a monastery um, that is helping to to bring back the use of amphora which they call quevery we went to a uh, a uh, a symposium on um, uh, hearing lots of speakers making wine in Quebec. We were there for the first annual Quebec symposium. The first annual Quebec. That that is true. That is the main purpose of our our trip. Right. And for me, one of the most interesting and exciting things was the way that they eat dinner. Huh. I loved dinner there. There there is food is amazing. You don't just eat; you feast. It's yeah. like. They they try to cover the table so that you can't see it because there's so many plates and so many foods, 
and this ceremonial toasting and uh the singing and the dancing, it's just like the most exciting place. I, mm. I love it. Yeah, what what, has brought, you, what has brought you back? Well, the second time I went back, which was a year after Naked Wine, my last book, was published in Georgian. So I went back for the publishing of it, for the book party and stuff. <laughs> so last September I was back. I know, it's crazy. And then this June, I, I'm working on a book on Georgia, so I went back this past June. Also, it coincided with the second Quivery Symposium. Perfect. And so a few days, I actually was able to be carted around with the yeah. other people, and the rest I was uh, pretty much on my own hooking up with people. It was, I went to the west part of the country. I went to visit Quivery Maker. It was very rich with experience. How would you put into your own words what makes Georgia so special? Mm. Well, I think like the food where flavor has not been bred out of it I and mean, you can bite into a radish. And when have you ever thought about a radish being juicy? I mean, I didn't until I arrived this past time. I had a radish and it like burst. And I was like, wow. And bitter and bitter hasn't been bred out of the food. And all flavors are just embraced. Uh, the... And the people are the same way, and the wines are the same way. The people, I, like the emotion hasn't been bred out of them. They're, I view them as mythical characters. They're, uh, they're emotional, and I find the wine emotional. And I think that's what makes it completely special. Also, what is incredibly touching to me is that after like, the Soviets left in 91, then it was, you know, pillage and spoils I mean, it was just the wild west there mm -hmm. for a decade where they were dealing with incredible poverty and war and crime and then then they in come the year like 2001 they started to hope again and and be rejuvenated and i just find that extremely moving yeah i i've gotten goosebumps uh hearing your hearing you talk about it and re remembering the, the experience uh, in georgia it is an unforgettable experience yeah. the wines are are so compelling um, the best of the wines are extremely compelling yes really we have them at Afora. yes and uh <laughs> sorry to throw in the, the little plug there but the, you have these truly i guess in in the way that um some of the other ones i really love are they're they're so distinctive and there's nothing else like them in the mm -hmm. entire world and usually for what you lose with inexpensive wines, even well-made inexpensive wines, is a certain level of distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. And as wines are more, you know, come from a better terroir or, or whatever, they, they get more distinctive. There, everything is distinctive. Everything right. is so separate and so unique, and there's nothing else like it anywhere else. Yeah, and actually, in price-wise, so, you know, retail of, you know, Pheasant's Tears or um, Yago's Wine, uh, you know, they're like, like 20 to 24 retail. Yeah. So it's like, and you know, on a list, line. like, you know, they're, they're, they're also affordable for, it's not that expensive for something that is so special and unique. Yeah. And you remember we went to visit Yago. Yes, we did. I have this incredible video and you're in the, you're in the video and it was an emotional, it was an emotional thing for him because he has four or six amphora. Now he's got more. He has a new winery. Oh, well, <laughs> he's really getting big. Then. I broke well, my fast there after Yom Kippur last year. 
That's that was pretty wild. Amazing. Yeah. And he had planned on opening up this amphora for the for our visit, mm-hmm. which he had he had sealed it when the wine went in and he had planned on opening it for right. our visit and he had only four or six of them. It was, it was right. tiny. So one one a major part of his production he had planned for us to go there and he it was this huge ceremony for him to open the amphora and tears it's a came into his eyes. It's a big project. Yeah. It was yeah. A, it was Should a we one. say what on four is? What quivery is? Let's say Quickly, what it is. Before Quickly. you boot yes. me out of here. Uh, so these are clay vessels that are buried in the ground. They're planted. They can stay there for up to a century or until they break, whatever. And so uh, the wine simply goes, they make wine, red wine, the same way as they make white wine. So it goes into the the quivery. Uh, fermentation happens. Mm-hmm. It's done. They seal it up. They open it up eight months later. Wine is done. It's a very simple process of making wine. And they just trust in God because they're very religious. And there you go. But they're basically uh, lemon-shaped containers that are planted in the ground. Oh, I like that lemon shape. And then they then they add their, the enzymes and the wood chips. Right, and all that. No, so they don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> Sulfur is still considered the devil there. But Wow. So. They're, I mean, incredible wines. Incredible guest. Yes, incredible host. Alice, thank you so much. <laughs> Pleasure. It's great to have you on the show. Um, thank you all for listening. Definitely check out The Firing Line and Alice's new book on Georgian wines when it comes out. But for now, Naked Wines and The Battle for Love and Wine. Check them both out. They're great. Uh, thanks so much again for listening. We will uh, see you next week on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 